Why don't you, if you're here with me, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 24 to 27 of Matthew 17. This is the Word of God. A reminder that not just the words that are in red, but the words that are in black, all of them are the words of Christ who divinely inspired His Word. So when we read even the words that are in the color black, we treat it with such reverence. God has a word for us today. So look at verse, or chapter 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others... Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus, taxes, and fishing. What in the world? This is such a strange passage at first glance. i got to be honest with you. I hadn't in the past paid much attention to it ever. But it's not until you systematically exposit God's word going passage by passage that you're forced to deal with strange texts like this. What does a pastor do in preaching this passage? Jesus, taxes, and fishing. I want you to know something. These are, these are just thrilling moments for me because when I spend my time digging in God's Word and come across a text like this that at first seems strange, but after significant study, you see the significance, the gravity behind this passage is a vein of gold. And so it is a joy for me to preach this text. Because I want you to know that this small package, this small passage has one of the greatest displays of Jesus' divinity. And you may not have caught it at a first read. But this passage proclaims Christ. And that's what we come to do on Sunday morning. For those of you who are newer with us, we've been expositing the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is to highlight the fact that Jesus is King. It's to highlight and and glorify Him as the true majesty, the anointed one sent from God, the one who will establish His kingdom and save sinners. And so when we come to every Sunday morning, we should be like the Greeks. You should be coming to me and saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to follow and see and behold and look and listen to the greatest subject of all time, Jesus the Christ. 
And again, in this passage, you are going to see a, an incredible divine display of who Jesus is. But before we get to the divine display, we have to understand the drachma drama. That's the first point in your outline. The drachma drama. Look back at verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, just in context, Capernaum is Jesus' headquarters, if you will. That is his place of residence. Jesus resides in Capernaum and shoots out from there to do ministry, to preach the gospel, to perform miracles. And so when he came to his uh, city of residence, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Uh Uh-oh, Jesus comes back to his place of residence, and much like us, he has a tax bill waiting for him. I don't know if you have already started figuring out your taxes for the year of 2023. This is about the season that we think about those things. And so Jesus truly does sympathize and relate with us in every way, doesn't he? Jesus faced taxes, just like we did. But you need to know something about the two drachma tax. This is not a civil tax. This is a religious tax. Why don't you turn with me to the book of Exodus. I've got to take you back in time to the origin of this tax for you to really understand the significance of it. Go back to the book of Exodus in chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. Now, let me get you up to speed in the book of Exodus. Three major movements in Exodus. The first is probably what you're most familiar with, which is the Exodus. That is when God redeems the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He did ten incredibly profound, powerful plagues, right? And and brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Now, Why did God save the people of Israel? Was it because they're good people? Was it because they were law-abiding citizens? Was it because they somehow deserved or earned it? No. God redeemed the people of Israel because He's gracious. Because He's merciful. Because He is faithful to His covenant. And the covenant, by the way, that was given to Father Abraham was not earned or deserved either. God just chose Abraham and decided to bestow grace and mercy and covenant-keeping love upon all his descendants. It's by grace that you're saved, not by works. By the way, the same in the Old Testament as the New. So before we get to the law part of Exodus, you need to know that salvation is by grace. The people of God have been redeemed. They've been set apart And they've been called God's chosen nation. Which leads us to the second movement in the book of Exodus, which is the law. Law follows grace. See, the law was not a a way to earn a right relationship with God. It was never meant to be such. The law is a reflection of that relationship. God saves you by grace. 
And as a result of grace and thanksgiving, you walk in right relationship with him. And so God gives his law. You're you're familiar with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Uh, Even a, a more succinct summation of the law is given by Jesus in the two great commandments, right? The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. There, that sums up essentially the first four commandments. And then the following, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, follow the, the argument here. Theologically, this is important. You've been saved by grace. You've been chosen by God and redeemed out of slavery. Now, walk in right relationship with him. Motivated by grace, motivated by his incredible covenant-keeping love for you, love him in return with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Worship him as God. And then, out of, out of the redeeming grace and, and motivated by love, love your neighbor as yourself. So far, any significant differences between old covenant walk with God and new covenant walk with God? Pretty similar, isn't it? Now, here's a significant difference. The third movement in Exodus You just call it tabernacle. What does tabernacle mean? God dwelling with his people. He says something incredible in Exodus chapter 25. God doesn't just save the people out of slavery and then give them rules to live by and walk away. God says, no, no, no. So I want to make a sanctuary. In fact, I want you to make a sanctuary for me amidst the people that I might dwell tabernacle in their midst. Exodus 25.8. God wants to be among his people. God wants to be at the center of their camp, which is where the tabernacle was, at the center of their lives, at the center of their universe. And he wants to enjoy a personal relationship with his people. That's the kind of God we worship. A God who's personal. A God who comes who saves and wants relationship with us. But, in order for them to enjoy right relationship with God, they need to understand His holiness. And they need to approach God in worship reverently. God is not your homie. God is not just a friend that you can relate to on human level. God is perfect and holy and righteous and just. And so in order for them to enjoy that right relationship with God, there are sacrifices that need to be made. There are offerings that need to be taken place. There are payments that need to be made. Michael Grisanti, a, you know, Old Testament scholar said, "What an Israelite when they offered a sacrifice, that was to be a window into his soul rather than a cloak." That covers what's already there. You need to look at the sacrificial system not as the ultimate means of forgiveness and atonement to cover your sin. It was a way for the people of Israel to show God their dependence and trust in his salvation and the sinfulness in their own hearts. They're not a way to earn salvation. God does that. We've already established that. He saved them from Egypt but it would establish a need for a permanent solution for sin. 
Because the Old Testament law shows us essentially two things. God is perfectly holy, and you and I are persistent sinners. And there would need to be something that takes place, somebody that comes that makes our relationship truly right. The sacrifices won't do that, ultimately. But they point forward to somebody who does. So, you have the Exodus, salvation. You have the law, a way to walk right in right relationship with God. You have the tabernacle, God dwelling amongst His people. All of these things show us who God is, who we are, and expresses loyalty back to God. Now we get to our text in Exodus 30. You need that context to understand what's called in the ESV Bible, the census tax. Your title might be the temple tribute. This is the two drachma tax that Jesus deals with in Matthew 17. So look down at the the passage, Matthew, Matthew 30, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, by the way, censuses were taken before what? In this Old Testament time, before war. Why do you count all the males over the age of 20? Who are your fighters? So kings would have censuses taken to establish, okay, who, who are the men? Who, who's going to be our army that will go out for us? But why does God have his census taken? Let's keep reading. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. God doesn't want the census to prepare for war. He wants the census to prepare the people for worship. Don't be concerned about your enemies. You need to be concerned primarily about worshiping me, about giving toward the tabernacle. Now let's keep reading. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Guess how much that is equivalent to in the Attic coin? Two drachma. This is the two drachma. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall give no more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives." If you read later in Exodus 38, they have the first collection, over 600,000 men. And they use those funds for the service in the tabernacle. Many years later, after their return from exile in the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah reinstates this annual tribute. But the people love Nehemiah because he cuts the tax to a third a shekel. Now, Nehemiah likely does this because the people of Israel during that time were incredibly impoverished. Half a shekel was a lot more. But at some point between Nehemiah and Jesus' time in Matthew 17, it was brought back up to the half shekel 
tax. By the way, that in it, that's equivalent to two drachmas, and this is about two days' wage. This is about two days' wage. Maybe in our money, it's a, a couple hundred bucks. And this is an annual temple tribute. Now, two purposes for this tribute that was taken, collected from the people. First is ransom. Ransom. You heard that word multiple times in Exodus 30. This tax was to be taken as a ransom for their lives. Now, ransom, a simple definition biblically is that it is a payment to avoid punishment. A payment to avoid punishment. I don't know how many of you know the name Chris Voss. Chris Voss is an ex-FBI negotiator. If you listen to some podcasts, he has some podcasts on lessons in negotiation. He even has a master class that you can watch and learn how to negotiate a hostage release, which is strange. Like how many of us are in that situation where we need to negotiate a hostage release? And he talks about the concept of ransom. Ransom is the payment, the negotiated terms, to have the hostage be released. Now, in that context, in order to prevent further hurt upon the victim, there's a payment, a ransom, right? A payment to have their freedom. Now, God said in Exodus 20, 12, that you must pay this annual ransom tax to avoid this, so that there would be no plague among you when you are numbered. There's punishment that you could expect if you don't have this ransom tax. Well, wait a minute. That's not fair, we might say. This ransom is paid from the people to God for their lives to spare them from punishment. That's not fair unless you understand who you are, who who the people of Israel are, who we are. We are what? Sinners. We have all fallen short of God's perfect standard. There's a ransom on our heads. We owe Him a debt that we cannot pay. We deserve just punishment for our sin. The first thing that this tax does is remind the people of Israel that you have no rights. You owe God your life. And this meager amount paid annually was a reminder that He owns you. And that you deserve punishment. And even this act of giving money is to show He he owns your money too. There's nothing you have that is yours, or that is free outside of God. He bought you, uh, brought you out of Egypt. He saved you. It's all His grace. Now He owns you. He owns you. And this meager sum would remind the people of that. Of course, this small amount could not actually purchase their salvation. It was simply a reminder that they need it. They need salvation. A ransom needs to be paid for their debt of sin to be paid. Everything they have is is His, their rights, their freedom, 
It's all because of God. He owns them. Their money, it's his. Their goats, it's his. Their children are his. Their rights and freedom are his. So to forsake the ransom tax is to disobey and distrust God. Ransom, the first purpose of this tax. You need to understand that to understand the significance of Matthew 17. The second purpose of the tax is temple services. We see that. The the money is to be used. By the way, this is outside another offering that was collected for the building of the tabernacle. These funds were to be used for the services inside the tabernacle to purchase the animals for sacrifice, to, you know, essentially, uh, you know, any supplies that they needed, facility upkeep, etc. Exodus 30.16, you shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting. Now, in Israel's past, and even at this moment in, in Matthew 17, they have abused these funds. Certain times in Israel's history, they weren't providing for the Levitical priesthood to be able to minister to the people. And the Levitical priests essentially had to go and get, you know, they had to become bivocational. They had to go find jobs to meet their needs because the people weren't using the funds for the ministry. Now, then you had an opposite problem in New Testament times. In Jesus' times, these you know, religious leaders had extravagant chambers. They had taken exorbitant portions. Money changers are charging excessive rates to actually make a buck off of the money transfer from drachma to shekel. And so it has been abused. And that's why Jesus cleanses the temple twice. These funds are being massively abused. The system is totally corrupt from the reason and the purpose God had established it in the very beginning. It's safe to assume that the collectors in Matthew 17 are not concerned about the spiritual significance of this tax. Nor were these funds being used appropriately for service in the temple. The system's corrupt. Their concern was the duty of collecting money, performing according to the law, and their concern was whether Jesus would do his part as a Jewish citizen of Capernaum. So, with this context, the purposes given to us in Exodus 30, and knowing who Jesus is, and the current abuse inside the temple system, what do you think? Should Jesus pay this tax? Would you? If you're honest with yourself, probably not. You'd find some strange way to, to you know, withhold yourself, to be exempt. Think about the implications of this. Should Jesus pay this tax? Jesus was without sin. Ransom money? Jesus wouldn't be punished for any sin. He is without sin. They're abusing the money already. Jesus is greater than the temple. He's the manifestation of the tabernacle. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Shouldn't they be paying him? Shouldn't Jesus stop these guys and give them a proper lecture on the purpose of this tax and how they're abusing it? Why would Jesus continue to feed a corrupt system? Isn't Jesus exempt from this? What does Jesus do? 
With that context and understanding of the drachma drama, now we get to the divine display. So turn back over to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. And look back at what Jesus does in verse 25. We need to remember who the hero is in Matthew's gospel. We need to remember who we, came, we come to behold. We want to look and see what he does and listen and hear his instruction. In this seemingly trivial drachma drama, we're going to see an extraordinary display of, dis, of divinity. And I count five displays of Christ's deity in this short passage. Five displays of the divinity of Christ. Let's look at him. First, he is all-knowing. There's this little part of verse 25 you may have skipped over. Peter says, yes, quickly. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him when? First, before Peter can get out a word, Jesus speaks, addressing with full knowledge the entire situation. Jesus did not overhear the conversation. Jesus not was, was within you know, earshot of this conversation. This conversation was had outside. Peter came into the house, and before Peter speaks, Jesus starts talking about the topic he's going to address. Here's a display of his divine omniscience. Jesus knows everything. Jesus has done this kind of miracle before. He's he's done this with the scribes. In Matthew 9, we saw Jesus, knowing the scribes' thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? What about Jesus' interaction with Nathanael in the book of John? Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, Nathanael says, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you're under the fig tree, I saw you. And look at Nathanael's answer. In in light of this miracle of Jesus' divine omniscience, he says, Rabbi, you are who? The Son of God, and you are the King of Israel. That's all Nathanael needed. was a display of his omniscience. And Jesus says, Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, and you believe, you're going to see greater things than these. John says in John 2, Jesus knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows everything through and through. We saw this with the Samaritan woman at the well. The woman left the bar, uh, the, the water jar. She went away into the town and told the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Jesus' omniscience is significant. That's a significant detail in this story. A great display of his divinity. And it should impact our very lives today. Jesus doesn't just know what you've done and what you've said. He knows what you think, what you want. He knows your heart. Nothing's hidden from his sight. I like this quote from J.C. Ryle who writes, There is something unspeakably solemn in the thought that Jesus knows all things. There is an eye that sees all our daily conduct. There is an ear that hears all our daily words. 
All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Concealment is impossible. Hypocrisy is useless. We may deceive ministers. We may impose upon our relations and our neighbors. But the Lord sees us through and through. We cannot deceive Christ. Jesus is all-knowing. He proves it and shows it in this small miracle. How does that affect your life today? Jesus knows you through and through. He's all-knowing. He is omniscient. All-knowing. The second display of His divinity is that Jesus, He is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. He starts with this question. What do you think, Simon? Appealing to Him, His, his, you know, his human name. From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Or from outsiders? Now, most empires and nations at the time of Jesus are ruled by an aristocracy. It was well known that the king's own family, including his sons, are exempt from taxation. Because what do the taxes pay for? The king's family. The king's matters. It would, would make no sense for the children of the king to pay their own means of support. That's what the taxes were used for. And so that's why Peter answers correctly. Kings take taxes from others. That is outsiders to the family. And look at what Jesus said to him. Then the sons are free. What's the implication here? Who's Jesus talking about? The sons are free. Well, what, what does Jesus call the temple? My father's house. What did Peter just confess in Matthew 16, 16? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In fact, we just saw the transfiguration. And God, the heavens opened for the second time. And the father said again, this is my beloved son. These collectors do not realize who Jesus is. A friend of mine, his dad's a pastor. And when he was young, he got caught running around in the pastor's offices looking for candy. Because he knew that there was candy in each of the offices. So he's running around with his friends in the pastor's offices. And, and a man came up and said, hey kid, you're not supposed to be in here. And my little friend looked up at him and says, do you know who my dad is? He said, he's the pastor. And the man profusely apologized. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Jesus could have asked these questions. You know who my dad is? This is my father's house. He already told us he's greater than the temple. He's going to replace this temple. The Son of Heaven is exempt from paying His Father's tax. This is a declaration of His Sonship. He is the Son of God. If these collectors knew who He was, he, they would not dare to ask Jesus to pay this tax. This is beneath Him. Far beneath Him. So is that the answer then? Does Jesus leave it at that and say, listen, don't you know who I am? I'm exempt from this. No, we see the three display of divinity here, which is most shocking to us. 
because of who we are naturally. Jesus is, point number three, he is considerate. He is considerate. You could say he is humble. He defers his own rights and privileges for the sake of others. This is striking. These next words, look at verse 27. However, not to give offense to them. Jesus doesn't want to offend them unnecessarily. He's considerate of the way they'll respond, their reaction, their thoughts. He isn't quick to say, well, this is the truth and so be it. Jesus has a mind for others. That's incredible. J.C. Ryle writes this. He was just so helpful in my study this week. He says, there's deep wisdom in these words. Well would it be for the church and for the world if these words had been more studied, pondered, and used by us. To give no offense. The word offense is scandalon. He didn't want to give them a cause for stumbling. He didn't want to put a stumbling block before them unnecessarily. Didn't want to put an unnecessary speed bump on their road. He was considerate of them. Thoughtful. Kind. And in this case... Jesus would rather not offend these tax collectors than to save money and appeal to his right as God's son. That's incredible. What good would it be for the advancement of his gospel, his teaching, and his reputation among outsiders to be known as the teacher that doesn't pay the tax? Jesus is never one to throw his weight around. Never did. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the son of God. He's greater than the temple. He's the Messiah, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Yet he was truly considerate. He became a man. Took on human flesh. And suffered like us. Was hungry like us. Was thirsty like us. When he didn't have to be. Satan told him, you can make bread right here. But he refused. Why? So that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Deferred his divine right. Become like us. Oh, he's the king. He should be worshipped. There should be men falling at his feet, honoring and glorifying him, washing his feet. But what do we see him do? Takes on the apron and he stoops low to wash his disciples' feet. Amazing. Jesus not only paid the temple tax, he paid the civil tax. He rendered to Caesar what was Caesar's. And the ultimate display of his consideration is that Jesus suffered On the cross. He took the criminal's worst penalty. This worst form of torture and death. When he had no sin. He was completely innocent. He endured a false trial. And was killed for sins that he did not commit. Yet he willingly hung there. And as they're blaspheming his name. He says, Father forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Divine consideration for others. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He laid aside his rights, his privileges, for the sake of others. And here is a clear and specific example of Jesus doing that. He didn't have to. But he humbly laid down his divine privilege to consider others as more important than himself. And you know that Philippians 2, what I just quoted... 
calls us to think in the same way. Calls us, that is followers of Christ, to have the same mindset as him. You, friend, me, to at times, and in specific cases, be willing to lay down your rights, your privileges, for the sake of others. Put others before yourself, just as our Lord and Savior. And that is counter-American. That is counter-American. We fight for our rights and privileges. We don't lay them down. In fact, that's why we're here. Do you know why we're here? Why our country exists? No taxation without representation. You're not going to take our money from a foreign land. It's ours. It's our right. Our money. And so that's the Revolutionary War, among other things. But this is an American mindset. This is not Christ's mindset. J.C. Ryle, again, writes, there are cases when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. May our fights be on the hills that Christ died on. The hill of truth. The hill of God's honor, God's glory. The hill of the gospel. And when it is right and appropriate, we need to lay aside our comforts, our time, our money, for the sake of others. What is it like if you're a follower of Christ, to be considerate as a citizen of the United States? What is it like for you, a follower of Christ, to be considerate as a member of your church? What is it like for you as a citizen or a follower of Jesus Christ to be considerate as a neighbor in your community? Or to be considerate like Christ toward your family? Are there rights and privileges that you can lay down? Are there hills and preferences that you don't need to die on? Stumbling blocks that you don't need to put in front of people so that they would know Christ and glorify Him. Things that maybe you don't need to bring up. No, Paul shows us this in the scripture reading passage we read today. 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, we have, made, we have not made use of our rights. We haven't pulled that card out. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What are some rights and privileges you can lay down to win more for Christ? What are some hills and preferences that you can lay aside for the sake of your brother or your sister in Christ? Jesus is remarkably considerate. And we are thankful for that because we are filthy sinners. Christ laid down his rights to save us. Praise God. Oh, be overwhelmed by the divine consideration of God toward you. Let that just draw you into sincere worship. He's so gracious with us and considerate and kind. And also, if you know that, strive to be like him. Considerate of others as he was considerate of us. The fourth display of divinity here is that Jesus is powerful Jesus is the real Aquaman. Look at verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Man, he fishes without bait. And he catches a fish. Genesis 1.21 says, God created the sea creatures, 
Psalm 89 appeals to that and says, so he rules the sea. In Job 12, 7, Job tells his accusers to speak to the beasts, speak to the birds of the sky and the fish, and they will counsel you and say, in the hand of Yahweh is the life of every living thing. You know, Jewish um, legends and folklore tried to place the shekel in the fish's mouth. Come up with all kind of random stories about how a young boy threw a shekel into this fish's mouth before Jesus came and drew it out of him. They're trying to diminish the divine miracle here. They're trying to disprove Christ's divinity. This is nothing other than a divine miracle. Jesus is God. He's the creator. He made the fish. He calls the fish. He produces a shekel in the fish and provides a provision for him and his disciple. Jesus is powerful and displays his creative power in this miracle. Every miracle shows and highlights that God is powerful over nature. He's powerful over every living creature. He's powerful over men. He's sovereign. He rules over all. And this is just a reminder of that. Fifthly, fifthly, another divine display, he is generous. Jesus says, take that, that is the shekel, and give it to them for me and for you. Jesus provides not only the half shekel for himself, but another one for Peter, his disciple. It's a small act of generosity, but it teaches us a lot. It points us to the greater generosity of God to provide all our needs. In Matthew 6, we remember your heavenly Father knows all your earthly needs. You know what is included in that? Your heavenly Father knows you need to pay taxes. He hasn't forgotten that. That isn't out of sight, out of mind for him. He knows all your needs. He knows the food that you need to eat. He knows the the water you need to drink. He knows that you need to have a house, a home, clothes to wear. And he knows that all of us need to pay taxes. And he provides for our needs graciously. Do you trust God's generosity when you pay taxes? Do you trust God's generosity when you give sacrificially to the church? Do you trust God's generosity that he'll replenish you and give generously so that you can give generously to others? Guess who funds your generosity? God's generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is giving a command for believers to give to the church. He says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, a side note, there's not a command in the New Testament to pay a tithe. We call it that. But the new requirement in the new covenant is to give as you have decided in your heart. Which some people think, oh, phew, I'm off the hook. I don't have to give 10%. But now consider what he just said. It's in your heart before who? God. As a new covenant believer, you enter the throne room of God from your heart And you take your funds to him and say, God, what do you think I should give? That's, that's in some ways, a higher standard sometimes, right? As you're working it out before the Lord. But God doesn't want you to give reluctantly or under compulsion or begrudgingly or dutifully. He loves a cheerful giver. And look at what is promised here. God is able to make all grace abound to you 
So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God funds your generosity. His greater generosity funds our meager efforts in generosity. And God provides for all our needs, even to be generous in our giving. But this small act of generosity also has a greater irony to it. And this is where I want to close. Hopefully you had a sense of that as I went to the Old Testament and talked about the purpose of this tax. Jesus pays for his and Peter's temple tribute. He pays the ransom money, even though he has no sin and has no reason to fear God's punishment. He pays the money even knowing that the temple, the sacrificial system is corrupt. The money is probably going to be misused and abused. And you need to know that the Old Testament sacrificial system was temporary. This tabernacle, this temple was temporary. And it was always given to be temporary. It was never the ultimate solution for sinners to be right with a holy God. And it couldn't be the ultimate solution for two reasons. God's holiness outperforms the sacrificial system. At the end of the day, God is perfect and we cannot reach him through imperfect means. And the other reason, our own sinfulness outperforms the sacrificial system. Guess what would happen when the people of Israel would go to the temple and make offering and atonement for their sins? What would they do the next day? Same thing me and you do. We sin. And then we sin again. And then we sin again. And the book of Hebrews says, no amount, no quantity of sacrifices can forgive sin. The system pointed forward to an ultimate solution. A solution outside of ourselves. A solution that comes down from heaven. In the book of John, when it talks about Jesus coming to this earth, it talks about God tabernacling with men. Jesus tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. He was the Emmanuel. The manifestation of of God's presence among his people. Only a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice can please a holy God. Only the blood of a perfect man can atone for the sins of many. These collectors come and they want Jesus' money, but they should be asking for his life. The book of Mark, here's Jesus' mission statement. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a Ransom for many. The irony about this whole account is that although Jesus gives them the funds, he's about to make the ultimate payment. He's about to pay the bill. He's going to close the account with no outstanding balance. He lives a truly holy life without sin. Jesus dies on the cross as a substitute. He takes God's punishment even though he doesn't deserve it. And then he rose again from the dead. That's the receipt. The payment is made in full. Sins have been paid for. Death has been conquered through the finished work of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. And so year after year, people would pay this tax for atonement. Month after month and day after day, sacrifices were made. Offerings were made. All pointing forward to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
they all point forward to Jesus. These collectors didn't see the significance of it. Peter, at this point, doesn't see the significance of it, but do you? Do you see what Jesus is moving towards? The Son of Man must suffer. He must die. He must rise again for your salvation to make final atonement. How has your ransom been paid? If it has, has your ransom been paid? You can't pay it yourself. No good works can put a dent in your debt to God. Without Christ, you're doomed to a final payment of suffering and torment in hell. You will be punished. But if you believe in Jesus, you're free from that debt. He made the payment on your behalf. The rest of your life is an expression of worship and gratitude for what he's done. Would you believe in Christ today if you have not already? Would you trust in his full payment that he made? And for those of us who believe, oh, we're so grateful and thankful for the payment he made. We're thankful for his generosity, his provision, the salvation that he gave us through Christ. And out of response of that gratitude, out of thanksgiving and joy, it is our delight to imitate Christ in the ways that he could be imitated in this passage. It's our delight to lay down our privileges and our rights for the sake of others. It's our delight to be generous toward others and back to God. It's our joy, our joy to know him and to walk closely with him and to imitate him in his life. Behold the divine display. He's all-knowing. He's the son of God. He's considerate. He's powerful. And he's generous. Look at our king as he approaches just such an earthly matter, like a temple tax. Shouldn't we as the sons of his kingdom, his ambassadors, emulate his heart and his attitude to all those that we interact with? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we'd be overwhelmed with your son, Jesus Christ. He is truly incredible. The humility that he displayed by becoming a man, by being obedient to the point of death, even death is on a cross, for our sake, for the sake of others, is amazing, God. I pray that we would continue to be overwhelmed by that. I pray for anybody here who, Lord, the Holy Spirit hopefully is convicting their hearts and, and calling them and, and causing them to be born again, changing their, their hearts so that they can open their eyes and believe. I pray that they would believe Christ today. I pray that they would receive this gift of salvation just by faith alone, not by works. We can't pay off the debt. All we can do is believe. Receive Christ by faith. I pray that they would do so. And I pray that we who do trust in Christ, do claim that he's our, our king, our master, our savior, that we would look like him more and more every day and stand out as citizens of the kingdom, even as we are still citizens of this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.